taping so many of these, it's uh, you start sounding more and more like a DJ and get your DJ voice. But anyway, proud to be here. Mentors from Military, 15 Perry Street, my sidekick, Paul Martinez. Hey, everybody. So Casey Clark joins us, and we're going to get into, Casey, your background. And I can't remember. Geez, we talked about this, but I do not recall where you're originally from. I am originally from southwestern Virginia. Not Southwest Virginia, but the okay, state of let's Virginia. Let's get into this. Yeah. Why is there a difference? Well, I mean, they are, there's a difference because it used to be one state and they separated for their own differences, um, which is. You well, know, I knew the West Virginia and Southwest, but the fact that you actually said Southwest, it's a so uh, it's a goofy stigma. I mean, I'm not from that far away from the actual state of West Virginia, but I don't know. What do you think of when I say West Virginia? Blue Ridge Mountains. I think you got a lot Mountain more teeth. You're kind. Yeah, yeah, there you go. That, so Paul's hitting <laughs> so on what it is now. It? He, I was going to say, Casey has a lot more teeth. Yeah, he's making a, jo- a joke. That is so about. wrong. But it's, and it's then, the okay, so now I say Virginia. What do you think about when I say Virginia? Yeah, well, I don't want you to be from up north because you might be. Well, I shouldn't say that. But Wait, Northern you consider Virginia, Virginia north? No, Northern Virginia is basically like D.C. Yeah, that's true. It I'm, is. I'm from, it's completely culturally different than oh, rest absolutely. of Virginia. Because of the Beltway. And I think that people... Yeah. A lot of states are like that, though. We're here in Georgia. Atlanta's the same thing. Atlanta might absolutely. as well be a Very, very thing. different from the outside yeah. of that. Yeah. But I, I'm from Bedford County, Virginia, which is kind of halfway between Lynchburg is and... Is that named for Nathan Bedford No Forest? way no. you're from Bedford okay. County. I did not know that. I am. You know Bedford County? I do because my ancestor who came across from Scotland... First arrived in Bedford County. Ah, one of the wild boys out there. And uh, well, that was the wild frontier. It and was. in the 1700s, and um, it's it, you know one of these things where it was tobacco farming was really big. Um, they right. put the Scots and the Irish out there in the frontier because they wanted a buffer between the English and the uh, the Native Americans. Yep. So yeah, yeah, it was the wild wild west out there for a period of time. As a matter of fact, there were raids by Native Americans that would come in and burn down houses, snatch uh, the women or even the men for that matter. And it was crazy, crazy times. But that's so odd that you're from that. I actually went up there one time um, on a business trip. Ah, uh, God, I, I I think I traveled into flew into Roanoke or something yep. like that, yep. and I drove out to Goochland County. Pretty much County. your only option. Yeah, yeah, and flew into Goochland, or I mean, drove in through Goochland County. Oh, and you might have flown into Richmond. Then, Richmond, okay, which is the state capital. That's it, and then and then flew to. I mean, I drove through Goochland and all that area, and it was just so interesting. Like, have you have you ever even like you? I know we're getting way off track here, but have you ever been like um, where you find out historical things or you? You learn things about maybe not even your own family history or whatever the case may be, but let's say you started full circle. I mean, it started at Fort Benning, everything for you. Um, And then all of a sudden, 15 years later, you somehow get asked to go to Fort Benning to give a speech or to do whatever. And you go, oh, my God, this is crazy. You know, I'm full circle right back to where it all started. Well, the same thing is true for me when I I do genealogy sometimes on the side as a, a hobby and stuff for myself. And. And, and when I get a chance to kind of walk a mile in their shoes or see what it was all about, it's like, oh, okay, yeah, now, now I see why, you know, you chose beautiful country. Gorgeous. Rolling hills, lots of trees, forests, and everything in Bedford County. Yeah. Rivers. Bedford County's great. It's got a Civil War history, a little bit of revolutionary history, a little bit, and then, um, like you said, some colonial. You ever heard history. of a place called Orcs Creek? No. Okay. Never mind. Have you heard of Smith Mountain Lake? Were you there? No. Okay, that's the lake that I grew up on. I was lucky. 
Um, but it's like the largest lake completely contained within Virginia, like 500 miles of shoreline. Probably not too, not oh, too different in size from Lake Oconee. Did they dam something up? Yeah, it started in the uh, when the TVA was around, I guess, in the 30s. It didn't actually get completed until uh, the 60s, where they dammed up three rivers to generate power. Mm. Um, so Appalachian Electric Power controls the lake essentially, but people live on it. So you're living the good life, kind yeah. of in the boonies. Yep. Enjoying nature, and you go, I want to join the Army. No, actually, I had gone to college. Um, I graduated high school and then went to college on the opposite side of the state. I was going to uh, say which college? Yeah, Christopher Newport University, which is a small D3 school. Never heard of that. That's fine. Have a football team? Yeah, they do. Okay. I, I think I went to one game. I don't hang my hat on my time at Christopher Newport University. I made friends, whatever. But Christopher Newport? Yeah, okay, so Christopher Newport was Captain Hook. Christopher Newport was the captain of one of the ships that John Smith brought over uh, between the Godspeed Christopher Discovery. Newport was Captain Hook. Yes. He, one and the same. Yes. That is where the legend comes from. Did you know this, Paul? Okay, so no. Chris, so so everyone knows who John Smith was. It was the yeah. Discovery, the Susan Constant, and the Godspeed that brought everyone to Jamestown, yes. and which is very close to my school. And Christopher Newport was one of the ship captains. Once he got there, uh, he got paid out. I think he kind of floundered and looked around for shit to do because Jamestown wasn't a great place to be for a long time. And so he became a Barbary pirate in the Caribbean and later, I guess, got his hand bitten off. And that's where the legend of Captain Hook came from. Well, back in the day, Barbados and all that, you know, that's where the English was really trying to put a stronghold, you know, put, you know, send all of their, their stuff. They were, I think they were getting a lot of material as well from... Uh, the Caribbean. Um, yeah, Haiti and a lot of those islands and stuff was yeah. where a lot of the actual money was coming from because they were growing sugar and things like that. So. Right, right. They were taking indentured servants even from, you know, England and stuff. So if you got in trouble or, you know, with the law, and it could be something very simple, by the way. Somebody could even call you out and say, hey, listen, Paul stole something. Boom, you're gone. You're on a ship, man. You're going maybe yeah. to the Caribbean. It's, or, it was a br brutal existence yeah. um, in those colonies, like a 40% mortality rate at least. Right. I, uh, I, people didn't know that of indentured servants. And that yeah. wasn't always just because you're a criminal. It could also be that you can't pay your way. So yeah. you go, hey, listen, I'll go do some labor for seven years and work my time off from being able to come over here for free. Yeah. And, uh, yeah, you're right. It's like about 30 40% actual survival rate. Yeah. Very, so, very crazy. Anyways, anyway, I, getting I, back to the yeah, I get to college <laughs> so as a, a pirate, freshman. Pirate um, <laughs> at the pirate college. I went to, I went to yeah, the captain. Was your mascot? What was the mascot? The mascot was Christopher Newport, which was always polarizing because everyone they, everyone was like, like dude, a suit or something. Yeah, or? everyone was like, cut his freaking hand off and give him a hook. <laughs> like let's yeah. let's like embrace this. No one cares about the sh ship captain. You the, know? Did he? Did he really? Was there really? I mean, like the name? Oh uh, gosh, I I don't know. Okay. I don't remember. I, I think so. All I right, think so, Paul's going to Google it while yeah, we're yeah, talking. Please do. Yeah. So uh, I got there as a freshman, and this was 2008, which was kind of right as the world started to come down um, through the financial crisis and things like that. And someone told me about ROTC, and it was like, college can get paid for. I, I was lucky my parents were helping me pay for college. Um, there was no expectation of me to take a loan or anything like that, but I knew I could alleviate a burden on them. Mm -hmm. um, if I just get college paid for through ROTC. And then I also realized once I understood, you know, the terms, basically they pay for four years of college and then you do four years of service. And it's like, wow, guaranteed job for four years. Like that's pretty good too, because everyone that graduated 
you know, from the year I was a freshman to when I graduated, it was hard because that was 2009 to 2012 and there were no jobs out there. Mm -hmm. Not a lot of them at least. So I was like, cool, guaranteed job, uh, school's paid for, um, gonna do something interesting, not to mention the uh, tons of benefits that come with, you know, when you complete military service to, to an extent we're a protected class almost in the country because when you apply for a job, it asks you if you're a veteran because they care about yeah. stats and they're, they're especially if you're that. disabled and yeah. So it, it was like, this is an easy decision. And I, by the time I was like a senior, I already had orders. I didn't have to go to any of those like round table interviews that all the other students in the business school were doing. I didn't, I didn't even really have to care about my grades because yeah. right? I'd already been assessed. So as long as I graduated, yeah. it didn't really matter at that point. You so. had a contract. Uh, if you, what was it? Uh, junior year, you contract and is typically so typically no later than junior year. Mm -hmm. That is when you it's no later than yeah. So it changed. So I signed my contract as a freshman, but shortly thereafter, when you know we had an election uh, in 2008, so then we knew the kind of sequestration and like some of the I guess priorities of funding within the government were going to change with the new administration. So suddenly ROTC didn't have as much money to give away. So had I not signed that contract as a freshman, I might not even got one until I was a junior. They might not have had that money available for me. So I might've just been doing ROTC for not the whole time had I not locked it down early. And I watched a lot of other people come to ROTC. I mean, like, I'm going to do this and hope that the army offers me a contract. Mm. Like, imagine that, like hoping that the army will <laughs> let you join hoping I'm good enough to be an officer. Right, even though you're physically fit and you're gonna be a college grad and all that stuff, which is usually one of the outliers is physical fitness or physical disqualifications. It's like everything about you is fine, we just might not need you or have the money to like pay for your college it, that way. Was it an army ROTC? Yes. Now, now if I understand it correctly, and a lot of people who listening to this probably already know the answer to the question, but isn't it usually agnostic? You, in other words, you can go arm. It's an army ROTC, but you can go Navy, you can go to Marine Corps, or no. or is it always army? It's so a, is it hit or miss? Like if oh, I'm going to go to this college, but it's a Navy ROTC, but I don't want to go in the Navy, then you may not choose that college. Correct. May want may you, not want there, to. There choose are that ways I think to commission into a different branch. I don't know why you would spend the time doing army ROTC if you just wanted to join the Navy. There's other ways to do that, but uh, some of the other colleges that have like a core of cadets like Virginia Tech or Texas A&M, their stuff works a little differently yeah, where, yeah. I, where I think there's, you're all part of like this core of cadets, but you all belong to like one of the four service or three, I guess, ROTC programs. Cause you can do Naval ROTC and become a Marine officer. And Coast Guard, I think. Yes, yeah. yeah. But I, honestly, I do, I really don't know. I did, I did Army ROTC and then um, graduated May, 2012. And then later that month I was in Arizona for the Intel Officer basic course. So that's at Wachuca. Captain yep. Captain Hook. What did you find? I I found J M Barry's Captain Hook. What was the guy's name? Christopher Newport. Christopher Newport. I I know, maybe it was him. all BS the whole time. Yeah. Very interesting. I don't what, know. Who it's did not, you say was Captain Hook? The Captain Hook that we know from Peter Pan. Well, of course. Yeah. That's that's what came up on the Google. He was chased by an alligator his whole life. TikTok. So, all right, you graduate college, you already have this army guarantee. Um, what made you choose the MOS you did and the path that you did? Well, originally I had- Or career field as the officers, yeah, I guess so was. I, MI seemed interesting. I really did not know. 
I, I, I don't even know what my decision-making process was. I barely understood uh, what I was getting myself into, which I guess isn't a, a ringing endorsement for the ROTC program. Even though the benefits were great, I really had no idea what I, They didn't spend any time talking about, like, supply in motor pool Mondays and stuff like that. Instead, we were Why just doing... Why would they? That would be a sexy part of the film. Yeah, we were just doing sticks lanes and stuff like that, which is whatever. It's a good stressor, but, man, nothing prepares you for being a lieutenant. Yeah you know, or a company XO or something like that. So I don't even remember why I remember volunteering for a branch detail to armor. Cause at the time they would send, uh, like a lot of new lieutenants would spend their first basically two years of pre-captain career course time in a, uh, combat MOS or combat branch, um, or combat arms branch as it's called. And then when you become a captain, then you'll go to the MI school and you'll become an MI officer. So I, I didn't know that. Oh, well, I remember the guys like in, uh, armor battalion in the uh, S4 or uh, S2 or something like that. Yeah, being lieutenants and stuff like that. So that's what you're talking about. Before they actually got yeah to the, go to MI, you might be an S2. Um, well, you'd be an armor officer or something like that oh. first. And the way it was explained to me was when it comes to the need of officers, you know, your combat arms branch are kind of like a pyramid. You, you need a ton of lieutenants because there's a ton of platoons out there, ton of company level assignments but there's not a lot of need for MI lieutenants. As you go up and you become a captain and or field grade officer, the, the breadth of military intelligence branch assignments you can do are much greater. So they don't need a ton of MI lieutenants. They need a ton of combat arms lieutenants. And then as you become a captain, some of those from combat arms will switch into Did, did you have an branches. option to stay then in combat arms if you wanted to? I think some people could fight for it. I don't, I don't really even remember because right around the time when some of my peers were going through that, I was focused on switching into the civil affairs branch. But to, to round up kind of why I went MI, I volunteered to do the time in armor because it was actually more competitive to go straight MI. And for whatever reason, I had good enough grades, which was the biggest factor um, within the assessments criteria, they're like, you're gonna be straight MI, go straight into the Intel branch, which was a good thing because the first day of MI school, I met my now wife, even though we, we didn't get together until years later, but I mean, gosh. First I, thing they taught you to was the, how much of an oxymoron military intelligence is first. That's a hilarious joke. I've never heard that I know, before. Right? I, you hear it all the time. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I, yeah, you hear it all the time, but I'm, I'm like, whatever. And my school was cool. Wachuga was awesome. Um, but the, the crazy part was my first job, once I left, I went to Korea. Um, to, an, to an armor unit. <laughs> I wish. Um, I went to Korea as a brand, le brand new minted intel officer, and I was put in the brigade support battalion in the maintenance company as the XO, as a brand new second lieutenant. <laughs> <laughs> who like didn't know what no wonder we like, get these second lieutenants that we go what the what are they sending us i didn't know and here we go i was responsible <laughs> i knew nothing right i knew nothing and i was responsible for everything and uh at the time it was in my head a crisis like i don't understand what's happening to me right now because <laughs> korea i did it wasn't a great place to be in the army either it's constant discipline issues um but i learned how the army works because if you guys have ever seen at the company level, you know, it's supply and maintenance are two of the things you actually spend most of your time doing. And that yeah. became really important later on. And that's where I learned it. There were certain roles within the army that at least I learned very quickly that you want to make friends with, you know, finance, cause you want to get paid, mm -hmm. you know, the administrative side, cause you want your stuff always to be straight. 
because you want to get paid and yep. you want to make rank or whatever the case may be. Um, and then usually, you know, if, if you're in something like armor, like I was, then it's the motor pool guys too, because you want to make sure you get the best parts. You know, when you go down there, they got your stuff on order and you get it in. And I don't know about you guys, you know, but I got my stuff, you yeah. know. Well, my, my company was the motor pool guys. Mm. They were the maintainers. And, and honestly, one of the things that I learned the most from, there was, we had all the warrant officers, you know, that did the higher level maintenance. They were all assigned to my company. So there's like this little village of like seven warrant officers that had their own little hut that they all worked in when they when they were there, when you could find them, you know, as the but joke did goes. They work? Right. <laughs> yeah. Some of them. So I, I, some of them are the best I ever met. Yeah. And that's where I, I learned so much from them. I was like kind of as a lieutenant raised by this little village of warrant officers teaching me, you know, how the army actually runs. And then I had an extremely irritated first sergeant who also taught me, um, you know, how to apply, how to apply aggression as needed. Maybe over apply when I was a lieutenant. I had to calm down a little bit later on. Did did you have any time on the DMZ? I went up and visited, not yeah. at, as part of any kind of like operation what, or anything. What but yeah. camp were you at? I was at Camp Casey, ironically. Oh, yeah. Well, the, right? okay. Best joke the Army's ever played on me. <laughs> First duty station, <laughs> Camp Casey. Casey. cool, man. Yeah. Well, you were I over thought, there, right? Yeah, I spent a year over there. I liked going to Casey. Who were you with? I was with Army Garrison, U.S. Army Garrison. Interesting. Yeah. It was very You were with Army Garrison over there? Yeah, man. How did you get that assignment? That's a long story. <laughs> Do tell. I made somebody angry. Uh, I made an angry person angry. So it wasn't by your I, choice. It was not by design. No. Somebody just tried to teach you a hard lesson and put you back in the rear. No, I don't know if it was a lesson. I think it was just a fuck you. Yeah. You know, it's the only place you can be. A mortarman, be, by the way. It's the only place you can be P PCS2 if you have a year or less than two years. It's a one-year uh, one hardship to her. Yeah, you're accompanied. right. Yep. And I was in a position where I was needed to be PTSD. So that's where I went. But it was awesome. I loved it. It was, a, it was a gift. Absolutely. Korea is awesome, man. You're crazy. Did you buy all the coats and everything, you know, no, with the, the, the embroidery? The and no. But the food's amazing. The people are amazing. It's a very safe place. Traveling there is mm -hmm. easy. It's inexpensive. I mean, you get into Seoul, it can be expensive. The, Countryside is beautiful. I was in, uh, I was at Red Cloud, so right mm -hmm. at the base of the mountains. Got to do lots of hiking. <laughs> you rolling your eyes? Why are you rolling? Your yeah, <laughs> but I mean, it was a different. I was a, a different role, you know. I was a yeah, you know, I was the um, headquarters platoon sergeant, so I kind of could do my own thing. And my first sergeant was a former one seven five guy from the Somalia era. My he was sergeant, in big boy culture. My sergeant like I, major was a one sixtieth sergeant major. There you go. And you, you know, our adults, <laughs> the so adults, yeah. They're like, what do you want to do? I'm like, not this bullshit. And they're like, all right, do your thing. It was great. And you know, beautiful country, Be absolutely beautiful country. All that is true. Beautiful country, great food, safe, awesome people. W one of the challenges, uh, when I was there, critical shortage of NCOs because NCOs are smart enough yeah. to know how not to, to get out of an unaccompanied tour, but you know, who's not are the 18 year old privates that just graduated basic and they showed yeah. up by the dozen with they no, had no choice. They had no idea. Yeah, they're yeah. just yeah. Do it, going with. And then, gosh, the, the, so many problems with like alcohol and discipline issues. And I, I spent yeah. uh, over half my time in Korea on some sort of enforced unit prohibition from the company level all the way up to the peninsula level. 
There was a time where we had an incident on the peninsula and the second ID commander, Major General Ed Cardone, sent an email to all, every battalion commander saying, the party is over. Did like, you use those exact words? Literally, because That's I remember awesome. standing in the rain at 9 p.m. in a battalion formation while our battalion, on a Saturday on St. Patrick's Day, while the battalion commander read, <laughs> oh, not St. Patrick's read, Day. read the email to all of us. That was, that was, I was like, yeah, a guy in a different company got a DUI. Why, why, why am I here? Yeah. Like, I'm in my BOQ I alone. My my punishment. What, what year was this that you were there? 2012 to 2013. I was there. No, you were not. I was there. Oh, so you remember you were the big grinning yeah, here. Yeah. It didn't have no effect on me whatsoever. Uh -huh. Just stop. Turn your mic off. <laughs> <laughs> we were a garrison unit. They're like, uh, yeah, these guys got in trouble. You'll be seeing your friends out. That was one of the biggest things that I hated the most was the whole, you know, mash punishment. Okay, you want to do that in basic training? That's great. We're big boys and girls now. And somebody messes up, single them yeah. out, punish them. Yeah. Right? You can go ahead and call a formation and talk about what we should do, what we should not do. I get it. But that doesn't mean that 99.9% .9 of us are going to do the stupid thing that that guy did. And it never worked. It just kept it never happening. Did. It's just it made it worse. worse. Plus, the next guy to get in trouble was the private that wasn't here the last time it happened. Probably He's so. brand yeah. new. He, yeah. Yeah, right, brand new. He didn't know the pain. <laughs> you have 10% turnover every month in Korea because it's a one-year tour. You're right. And new people every month. Yeah. yeah. I could totally see that, but I used to hate that whole thing. Uh, well, I'm sorry, man. You had such a bad time there. Paul had a really great time the exact same time you, was, you were over there. I would though. go back. See? It was one of the best years I ever spent in the Army. 100%. Well, you know, and uh, there was a time frame, Paul, um, I remember at least when I was at Benning, that how a lot, uh, how Ranger Regiment ended up getting a lot of the lieutenants. You couldn't come in as a second uh, Louis. You got to go to Korea. Mm -hmm. Now, if you, you cut your teeth in Korea first. Yeah. Will allow you to come in, so Korea was a was a good assignment for probably the very reasons why you hated it to to learn how to be a commander yep. and a leader in the worst and dealing with sometimes maybe even the worst case scenarios yeah. in a I, real live mission because yeah. it's a demil demilitarized zone. Yeah. You know, well, it is a hardship tour. I mean, you yeah, got to think yeah. these are young privates that have never been away from home and they're restricted to post for a long period of time when they get in country. They have to learn a new culture and. It's tough, man. But the, a critical lack of NCO leadership at the time. Yeah, we had that um, as well. We just didn't have yeah. the slots filled. I, I'm not saying I didn't get anything out of it. Like, like I said, my year in Korea, I, I learned how the Army works, and it, I think it made me a better officer going forward, but it sucked at the time. I, I remember my company commander, who was also a moron, I'll say it. Um, he, <laughs> You're out now. He can't come yeah, with you. Say his name. No, no <laughs> I won't do that. Um, he was like, you're going to look back and remember as this as one of your best years in the army and i looked at him and i said i have nothing to look forward to then <laughs> oh. <laughs> that sounds like something paul would say totally yeah yeah he was yeah. wrong he was so fucking wrong wow. it, got, it only got better from there so how did it get better uh well from korea i went to texas to be in the third cavalry regiment which was awesome uh if you get you guys probably spent time around cav i know you were in armor where there's this like 
this hubris like we're awesome because we say we are and we sing songs about it and no one can challenge us because you can't challenge us if you're not in cav and if you're in cav then you're just going to go with it because we're awesome there were some things that were just a little crazy i'll be the first one to admit the guys you know they're all about the spurs and the stetsons and and their and the armor boots it's like come on guys no way man i loved that no did you really yes and here's why (laughs) because i came from korea where everyone was miserable and hated it and couldn't wait to go home there was no esprit de corps and then i I went to 3CR, one of yeah. the oldest, you know, still intact kind of brigade size or regiments yeah. in the army. And Esprit de Corps was sky high. Everyone was. No, I love that part of yeah, it. Don't ev- get me wrong. Everyone was stoked to be there. So I said, I'm, I'm in it. Like, I'm not going to. I'll be excited too, and it paid off. I'm just not a big guy on having buckles on my boots, you know? Well, I don't know. I, I, I liked it after the spur ride. You know, I got to wear them, and it was like, yes, like, this is cool. What's the spur like ride? Like, every Friday, I'll, I'll explain in a second, but basically every Friday with the Stetsons and Spurs, this, we had a leather belt with the, our own thing. They just bastardized the Army uniform every Friday, <laughs> and it's, like, not, like, ever written down that it's allowed or anything like that. Everyone just Who's going to tell them otherwise, right? Exactly, and I love that. I was like, we're all just out here doing whatever. Did doing you, whatever. Did you wear, like, the gold scarf and everything, too? or uh, No. Any type of scarf? No. No. Um, the spur ride is like a 24 to 48 hour, like physical challenge. A lot of okay. units have like an equivalent where you sure. earn, it's like, you know, hazing or whatever, but include soldier skills. Think of like a really, really like shortened version of EIB. Okay. Like it's not quite as That's difficult cool. as EIB. Somebody's gonna like li- I was going to say, be, be sure you qualify that because somebody's going to be listening to this and going, no, Dude, there is no difference between how dare he say. No, that. yeah, yeah. It's a. I would say it's a. Lo- it's a lower standard and more achievable by everyone. Yeah. But the concept of integrating soldier skills with yeah. like uh, physical challenges and stuff. That's. It's the same model. Okay, I yeah, like it. but much I'm more accessible. It. Yeah, and then you get, what at the end of this you get a set of st- uh, a set of spurs that you yep. can wear. Get, get your spurs and you drink a shit Stetson. ton of beer and, and you can go get a stetson. You can always wear the stetson as long as you're assigned. You get the stetson. So. You don't, I, you don't well, get issued it. No, you get well if you're an off officer, you have to go buy it. You enlisted. I guess they get their clothing allowance technically. Go get yeah, it. But, I don't know. Okay, I, I know we, it doesn't matter. Yeah. No, of course not. So, <laughs> uh, and and it's not mandatory either. So not every soldier had one, and that's fine. Yeah, and that was me. Yeah, there you go. Yeah. So, but but to answer your question, Too that's cool how I got soul. better. I showed up to a place where everyone was excited, and I was like, cool. Now this is like the army I was kind of hoping for all along versus the desolate place of misery that was camp casey at the time yeah i mean for us i don't you know honestly looking back um i do not remember too many people having stetsons and spurs and us having those types of events that must have come up a lot later Mm. i think you know getting a chance to wear a a set of spurs and a a cool looking cowboy hat every once in a while is great but you know i mean i don't know it's I'm not knocking it. Don't Look, get me wrong. I'm, when I was 23 and coming back from a really bad time in Korea, it was, I was very it, motivated. It was a motivator for you. Yeah. 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 I mean, if that's what it is, hey, great. You know, I'm all about it. Um, okay. I, met, I met General Milhorn. He's an old Cav guy. Yeah. Uh, he's up in New York. You know, they were like breaking down the comfort and sending it on its way after uh, phase one for the coronavirus thing. And he showed up in a, in a Stetson. He came out to a horse event at Warrior Ranch. And, it looked cool. No, no, no. Yeah. It looks awesome. Don't yeah. get me wrong. I'm going to get a bunch of hate mail now from my fellow cab guys. It's going to be like, what the hell? Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, you're, at, yeah. you're talking bad about us. But that's not the case. It's just, you know, it just wasn't for me. That's all. I, I don't know. I mean, it's military uniforms are military uniforms, man. They're, See. They're kind of. 
I've always thought it was kind of dorky, dude. Like not the hat, like the whole thing, the whole yeah. thing. Yeah, your boots don't need to be that shiny. When I first came in, I mean, <laughs> man, I'm just not that into it. If we had, but it's cool. If we had a fancy, you know, day and stuff, you know, that we got together, you know, we instead of wearing that kind of stuff, we wear a yellow scarf. And I can remember those stupid uh, things that make you hot as hell when it, you know, yeah. well, it's like 100 degrees outside and you made it these 90. Yeah. You got this stupid scarf around your neck. Yeah, you know? no, I remember thinking the same thing. Standing in formation in Fort Benning, it's 100 degrees, 100 percent humidity. Heat index is 130, and I'm wearing a wool cap from France. Why? <laughs> With nothing covering your nothing eyes. Nothing covering my yeah. eyes, just dying. Why? Yeah. yeah. But These are the things we miss, right? <laughs> yeah, right? <laughs> I don't know. So you, so you get you get to third ACR, mm-hmm. and life became better for you. Yeah. Um, it was only five months that I was there before I turned back around and left, um, deployed again. To We went to the Sinai Peninsula for the Multinational Force and Observer Mission. If you're familiar with that, it's, gosh, created in like 81, uh, independent of the UN as a peacekeeping force between Egypt and Israel. So mm. they kind of like monitor that strip of land. But it's 14 nations, a lot of people you would expect, a lot of people you wouldn't. Um, so I think I'll, I knew somebody that did that, but they did a lot of scuba diving. Is that the, <laughs> because that, you're right near the... Yeah, yeah, the Red Sea's right yes. there. Like you can do that. Um, oh, I knew somebody that did that. Yeah. yeah, so there was all your English-speaking Commonwealth countries, but then you had like... Columbia had a battalion over there, okay. which is vacation for them after fighting the FARC. Um, Fiji maintains a battalion. Fiji is a huge contributor to UN peacekeeping really? missions. Yeah. There, there were Fijians there that were on their 14th deployment to this mission or to a UN mission. They basically just live abroad doing peacekeeping for the UN and send remittances back. Um, who else was there? There was Sounds Nor- like an excellent assignment, right? right? Norway and Italy and all kinds of interesting groups. So I, I got to be the unit's liaison to like the multinational headquarters and stuff um, at a separate camp that was up north towards the Mediterranean, closer to the Gaza Strip. And so I was like up separated from the flagpole and spending all my time with other, other foreign military partners. Were and you it- still assigned to... Three AC, ACR, but you were yeah. you were de- uh, um, attached to them. Basically, I was I was still part of like our squadron mm. in every way. It was just I was on a solo job um, mm. okay. at a different camp. How did you get selected for that? How did you? Uh, uh, well, the first guy uh, pushed his luck with alcohol and was tempted by some of our New Zealand and Australian. So partners. next man up. Next man up. I've, I was working the night shift in the talk, and they're like, "Casey, we're sending you up there." And at first I was a little resistant, but it's the best thing that ever happened. Um, And that was where I realized like, I don't really care about Intel at all. I've never really done it because I was a maintenance officer. Now I'm in Egypt working in a talk and now I'm a liaison. There's no Intel function. It's like, I don't don't really even know what I'm doing as an Intel officer. So how do I find more of what I'm getting after right now with all these foreign military partners? And the answer was RSOF. Um, so that's when I put in my paperwork to become a civil affairs officer. Did somebody introduce you to that route or how did you find out about it? Google yeah. your friend or well, I mean, what uh, was it? it was first mentioned to me by, there was only one other Lieutenant from my unit that was actually on the North camp with me. Um, because we had a military police platoon that was doing security for the North camp that was part of our squadron. So he and his like 20 guys mm. were also up there. So I was like, I had a lieutenant buddy from the unit that was there. I was kind of doing my own thing. He was focused on security, excuse me, for that camp. 
Um, but he wanted to do civil affairs as well. And he mentioned it to me and then uh, it didn't take, but like, you know, a quick read on Google to be like, well, that sounds pretty interesting. And it fell under the soft umbrella, which is something that always interested me because as a cadet, I got to spend time with 10th group, um, one summer, which was like a life changing experience. We did Safawak and did all the shooting and all this cool stuff. But I realized I really, really like the culture, um, you know, where it's certain things are relaxed, but more professional. It's a community of adults yeah. um, for the most part. So I was like, okay, well, this would be a great way to get into soft, um, the kinder, gentler side. But yeah. That works for me. What were you guys? Well, I was going to say what attracted you to civil affairs, but I think you kind of. Yeah, it was the, well, one, like I said, I, I was always interested in trying to get over to the soft side, but uh, also the opportunity to like work with partner nations, right. other militaries and stuff like that on non, you know, kinetic problem sets. How, how did the guy that you knew, how did he pitch it that made you think civil affairs come? Because there's, there's a lot of different I think, soft, soft. Yeah. You know. I think he just told me he was looking into it and I was like, what's that? And he told me about it. Mm-hmm. I, I really don't even remember. Well, you, um, were, at a, you were at a, uh, um, an assignment that's pretty similar. Yeah. In that, was, in that assignment, right? Working with multi nation. Yeah. Multinational. There's a civilian component to it. It's, you know, a a peacekeeping thing versus like a, I don't know, non-kinetic type environment. There was still some weirdness going on because when when I was there, this was right as ISIS was steamrolling Iraq. So we were all kind of watching from across the water, like, oh God. And then they created an affiliate in the Sinai too. So it wasn't, it wasn't like, there was some element of danger, but not really. And, and to an extent, a lot of people were frustrated by that because a lot of the rest of the regiment was on a deployment to Afghanistan. And at first I was kind of disappointed that I didn't get to go do that. But a lot of the people I knew over there were just pushing over buildings and paving, you know, all the little camps we were shutting down. Whereas our, we were over there in Egypt, basically contributing to the longest sustained peace in the Middle East. Hmm. I got a question for you, Paul. When was it that you really became intimately familiar with civil affairs? Um, I never. Yeah, me either. We it we, was we it wasn't until probably yeah I heard about them, but not to the point like, of yeah show up and like hey this is us this is what we can do when we would you know be on a a joint task force and we're like all right we got a truck with some speakers that's kind of cool <laughs> what are you gonna do with that yeah like, see that's gonna, like psyops which is some cool stuff it's that? a nascent branch um, that is kind of still learning about itself. One of the things that gets kind of weird with the civil affairs branch is something like 80% or more. And I hope I'm not saying this wrong. Cause I, at this point, I, I don't People really will let you know if you get it wrong. Yeah. Okay, cool. Um, like 80% of the branches in the reserves, it's actually a army reserve function. It is. I, I learned that by talking actually to, um, the, um, guys who do the recruiting, um, yeah, I listened to that. But at any rate, yeah, they, they mentioned that it's primarily in the reserve forces. Yep. You know? and, and it's two very different functions because the reserves are sending civil affairs over there to uh, do whatever they require as far as like, I don't know, stability uh, operations or I don't even, I'm not going to get into doctrine, but the army maintains a brigade size civil affairs unit specifically to support SOCOM. So it's it's like a whole different the why is a little bit different. And the resources so are So the reserves too. are for conventional then? 
Yes, for the okay. most part. And uh, the reserves don't go through a selection process. Mm, um, okay. Not quite like us. That doesn't make us better. It just makes us different. What you see a lot in the reserves are professionals with actual skills like lawyers. Are they still considered and, special operations then? No. Uh, no. They. Okay. I think they, well, it gets confusing because they fall under something called United States Army Civil Affairs and Psyops Command or USA KPOC. And yes, KPOC used K-Poc. to be under, I think, SOCOM, but it, I don't know if I, it is uh, anymore. What was that under USASOC? I think, think USA KPOC was, was under USASOC. I don't know if it is yeah. anymore, but it gets confusing because a lot of the, like, they still go through SWIC. So, like, the Special Warfare Center in school on Fort Bragg still trains, has a component that trains these reserve officers. So, they go, they do go through a lot of the same training, which they almost don't need because, like I said, they're like actual career professionals, like people who actually practice law or build roads or practice medicine or whatever. Whereas we're all just officers or people coming from other MOSs trying to, generally understand what everyone else in soft is up to and figure out ways to support it. So mm-hmm. I would say they are different, but their hard skills are probably, they have a stronger bona fides when it comes to things like that. Hmm. Yeah. It's interesting. Cause like people are, the lines are kind of blurry. I mean, there's stuff that's just very clearly special operations. Right. And we talked to those guys and then you have, I mean, psyops, civil affairs, well, I, yeah, um, and, and what makes it a special operation? I, I don't know. Usually, you know, like except, the there's a definition. It's like politically sensitive or exceptionally dangerous or something like that. Yeah. Um, but let's say, so as an example, I went out on a civil affairs mission. We were supporting them. We were the muscle. They are going to go to a, I believe it was an orphanage or a school or a mission or something like that. Psyops or civil affairs? Civil affairs. Okay. What yeah. year? Uh, 2000. Did you guys run across each other Seven again? or eight. Okay. Yeah, yeah. It's, it's it's changed so we, drastically you know, since we, then. We went to a school and they did something. I think they were giving them some supplies of some sort, and we were there to help them. So it's a, a soft mission. We were the Rangers on that mission were soft, or did they just need some meatheads, and they didn't have any meatheads? You are crossing forces. some serious lines here by questioning whether or not. That's a story like that's matter. a historical <laughs> kind of trope about soccer balls and flip flops. And and that is what a lot of civil affairs did, but I don't even know if those guys were. I could have been. The, they might have been the reserves, and frankly, even it wasn't until gosh, they didn't even run a selection for civil affairs until like 2008 or something like that. I, I'm mixing dates, and people will probably get mad. But at one point, you could just essentially petition your branch to switch over to civil affairs and never go through a selection. So you'd be in SOF and have a SOF MOS. Um, but you did not have to go through the selection process. So 2007, 2008, yeah, it was, it was probably bullshit. And it's just, that's what we were up to was handing out shit like that. And to an extent, it's like, it doesn't require a special skill, but did you guys want to do it? Is that what you wanted to do? I did. Well, I didn't want to hand out soccer balls. I just wanted to get out of the wire. I was okay. like, these guys are good. Well, yeah, and, so my point is, it doesn't require a visibility. special. <laughs> I was like, this is, this sounds really dangerous because these people are not, necessarily experienced in combat and they're not really geared for that they're thinking about how to help the civilians we're going to go out in daylight in a place that we've been restricted to That's operate a left at night. Brain, right right brain thing for and you I'm guys like, though let's go this sounds extra dangerous well, that, like this sounds like it could go terribly wrong. So, well, that's been a big change. Is trying to like develop civil affairs on the soft side so they can like secure themselves or become fully cross-functional with the other 
soft branches, which is special forces and They don't stinking need you, Paul. That's what he's trying to say. Back now they did, sure. Right on. Well, (laughs) bye. Have fun. (laughs) The point I was making, though, is like, is it was handing out soccer balls and flip flops like a special operation? I don't know. And anyone, it wasn't a special skill, but who else is going to do it? Yeah. You know what I mean? Like a lot of times I think that's what CA comes down to is like, there's a civil component that needs to be addressed, but like in an SF team could probably do it, but they don't want to, <laughs> you know what I mean? They might, that they, so let's create an element. Well, called, maybe. They're supposed to focus on other things. So really it comes down to, and now all of army special operations has evolved under first special forces command who your next guest, general Brennan would be an awesome guest. Um, to become, I'd love to have General. Brown what's called the the Premier Partnership Organization. Yeah. If you remember, you know the beer I gave he, you. He just left though. Um, didn't he's changed your command here? I think. Yeah, it should yeah. be soon. Yeah. Um, but the idea is getting back to the roots of one SF's roots, which is partnering with indigenous yeah. militaries or yeah. foreign militaries. Psyops addresses the influence component online because speakers and leaflets aren't really a thing anymore. Now it's all about. Um, you know, your social media presence and how you communicate through that. And then civil affairs kind of addresses the, the green component, partnering with indigenous populations and institutions, international organizations, you know, on a lot of these missions where you're generally focused on like a soft mission set where it's influence partnering, who's going to be responsible for working with the UN or the aid organizations that are in your AOR. That's kind of, where civil affairs falls in doesn't require any special, I think, skills, just experience and, and, uh, what's the word? And we're not picking on you, but I think that it starts asking the question of, okay, does every element that may be in support of special op special operations, meaning hitters, you know, Rangers, SF, maybe even JSOC, whatever, all of a sudden now they become special operations because they're with special operations. You know what I mean? Well, I think what what we're really talking about, Robert, is that we're on the cusp of a complete shift in military thinking. Where conventional and special ops are going to be different, differently defined. Because what... We're moving from counterterrorism focus to great, great power competition. So it's about trying to position yourself and spend time with other nations to become the partner of choice when something happens or when they need something. They want to look, you want them to look to the United States instead of China or Russia. And that is in, in SOCOM part of what their mission. Yes. So that's the change. It's, it's not about the hitters and all these things anymore. We have people that will always do that because that's their job. Like, JSOC, probably guys that were just in the room before me. Um, but we're moving away from that, and we're, we're going to leave Afghanistan at some point. There's not a lot of people left in Iraq, but we're not going to leave the region. So the focus is different. It's about partnership versus hunting and killing. There you go. For those that were listening, that were following along with me and now understand. You understood that? I don't understand. <laughs> Not a ding on you. I'm just a little. I'm a no, I, that is head. a ding on me. I'm I should. A, I'm I should a meat eater. Explain it better. Um, so, well, you understand what great power competition is, yeah? Yeah, yeah. I got. I got that part. I, I, no, I, I get it. I'm just. It's. I'm gonna have to think about it for a little while. Yeah, it's about partnership. I'm, I'm not. So here, lots of TBI, Casey. Lots of TBI <laughs> going on over here. So just bear with me. That's fine. Um, and 
civil flares is what it, it's like it's a growing branch that's still trying to figure itself out and the active component i think is some i don't know i can give my own opinions now at some point it needs to find a way to divorce itself from the reserve component because they have different functions and they're used differently and they support different things so you, you almost want to just make up a different name for it don't be civil affairs but instead we have one consolidated place that writes doctrine and i think it just gets funky because as people in software are brilliant but there's smart people that from civil affairs reserves too that are contributing a lot of brain power to writing doctrine and then when you have two different communities trying to like write one doctrine for um, two communities that do different things it gets a little weird and then not to mention every civil affairs battalion is regionally aligned just like every sf group so the way you would apply those forces in every theater becomes completely different what you're doing in southcom is very different from what we need to be doing in centcom um, so every civil affairs officers and sf team leaders experiences are different you know at sf teams that go to afghanistan um are training partner military to like fight the taliban and do things like that whereas in south and they're doing like you know five month six month uh deployments whereas a lot of what's going on in south america is just j sets so you just go for 30 days or more to like do a little training exercise with another country and you come home um you're there temporarily so you're everyone's experience varies by theater and everyone can interpret all three rsoft branches completely differently because they run into different things. I mean, it makes perfect sense to what you're talking about as far as a rebranding in some ways, because I could see where not all things are created equal. Um, if you have if you have a, a set that's actually supporting, it's sort of like light infantry, mechanized infantry, rangers. Yeah. You know, and the reason why you call them those things are to define specifically how they support the mission, mm-hmm. you know. Which is always changing. It is, but I mean, it's it's... I mean, Rangers are basically light infantry, but I mean, it's, yeah. it's, you know what I mean? It's, it's I that yeah. brand uh, part of it that I think I can hear what you're saying that if it's, um, if you're civil affairs and you say, oh, I'm civil affairs, it's automatically now assumed, could be, most people probably assume that you're soft, mm-hmm. whereas you may not be because you're reserved. True. And so now if you're doing that, it'd be like, oh. You know, now it opens up a whole nother conversation. Okay, what's the difference? You know, well, you know. well, one of my colleagues uh, made the point that I don't, I don't know how you would apply it, but civil affairs, the soft function of civil affairs could, I don't know, potentially somehow be combined with FAO or foreign area officers. I've, I've got a ton of colleagues that that's really what they wanted to get at in the end was become like an expert on, you know, a certain region in a country. We all go through language training and stuff like that, but you're so busy doing all the other different pieces of train up. You don't always get to be as smart as the foreign service officer from the department of state you might encounter. So if you, I don't know, kind of elevate that education piece to make FAO and civil affairs from the special operations side, the same, I don't know. I, there's probably a thousand reasons why that can't happen or shouldn't happen. I don't know what they are. And I don't know. They're yeah, not, they're not here to argue with me. So the I other side of it, it though, is like an MI battalion, you know, you, Regiment, you know, 75th Ranger Regiment now has an MI battalion. Mm-hmm. So you're MI, but you just happen to be in regiment and yeah. army. So you don't have civil affairs supporting the conventional army in the active duty. 
There, there is one battalion that oh, does see, that. See, now you done. It you gets know. confusing, <laughs> and we won't, won't go into it. There's, there's one battalion um, that does do that, and that's a whole another thing because they're not resourced the same. But they, we all go. We're, they're literally my classmates. It's just some people get orders to, you know, the soft brigade. Some people go to the one individual battalion floating out there alone. Um, so, but when it comes to, I guess, MI people that get assigned to Ranger Regiment, they're MI. They're just in Ranger Regiment. Civil affairs is, they, there is a selection process. And then officers, when I went to the captain's career course, it was with SF and PSYOPs. We're all going through one qualifier as officers mm. um, through the career course before we go into our individual branch stuff. And there's a ton of work going on to integrate Robin Sage, um, which is you know the culminating exercise for SF with uh, civil affairs and PSYOPs. So just in the uh, you know five years that I've kind of been involved with civil affairs, I've seeing the integration like change a lot and general brennan I, one of his lines of effort within first special forces command is cross-functional teams making sure we encounter each other more and we're not strangers and it helped a lot that I, you do your captain's career course with those guys because now i'm going to run into those captains again somewhere mm-hmm. when we're team yeah. leaders or whatever and we start to understand each other a little bit better and now it's less about deploying you know, this team or that team, a PSYOPs team, a civil affairs team, an SF team. And now it's, you can essentially assemble different things together and deploy as one group where um, SF captain might have a civil affairs guy on his team and a PSYOPs guy on his team. And they're kind of assembling or you encounter each other when you're deployed, which is kind of what happened on my deployment to Saudi Arabia. It was, I had my team and then there was a PSYOPs team there or a small part of a PSYOPs detachment. And we came together and we basically made our own little information cell and, and work together. It's extremely cross-functional um, and more so like every year compared to when I started. You mentioned Robin Sage. So that's where you met Phil Sussman? So I met him in the civil affairs equivalent, which is called Operation Celestiller. Um, S- Celeste. Right. It's a weird word. It's it's a last name. It's a hyphenated last name. Celestiller. Okay. Um, which is named for a, a, you know, a casualty from the civil affairs regiment. Um, so it's a little bit shorter and obviously different from Robin Sage, um, but it's still in Pineland, fully immersive. Uh, I think it's like two weeks. It was two weeks when I went through. I don't know what it looks like now, but yeah, that's where I met Phil. We were on the same team out there. Which no, is- Phil is uh, Live American Yogi. So if you go out and look at Live American Yogi on Instagram, website or whatever, he's also been the podcast a couple of times. So, yep. Yep. Yeah. Also, he, he and I ended up in the same battalion because we were both Middle East focused, Arabic speakers, et cetera. So um, a lot of times you don't see your colleagues. If you're, they're not in the same company, if they're in a different company in your battalion, you almost never see them. Because of the rotation. All, the, the, I mean, you guys, go, right, you guys go on serious rotations. I remember talking with um, guys before about when you're not out downrange, you're back and you're going through either a school or a training or you may be on a different mission so set support. Yeah, it's, it's wild. It was like, I think um, someone told me, so the 96th Civil Affairs Battalion is where I came in as a team leader, which is the CENTCOM-focused unit. And that is the most continuously deployed unit like in the entire inventory of the Army, maybe even the DOD. Someone is all, one of the companies, one of the guidons is always out. And there was, I think when I came in, the deployment to dwell ratio was like one to 1.8. You weren't even getting two days at home for every day you're gone Um, because of OIR had picked up. So you had one company in Syria 
in related areas doing counter ISIS, et cetera. And then you had um, one company that was deployed doing what we called theater SIMC or civil military support element where every team kind of goes to a different country in the Middle East and is working with like the country team and it's kind of embassy driven. So there's always two companies deployed and when you've only got six companies, like you're, it's turn and burn. So, but uh, General Mattis, when he came in, or I guess Secretary Mattis, former Secretary Mattis, uh, really started to push to slow down the deployment rate and find ways to give people more dwell. And I, I don't know what the, the goal is one to three, but like a hard one to two, like you can't leave until you're at a one to two, I think is what it is right now. Um, so things are slowing down and uh, the 96 Civil Affairs Battalion started to share the love um, with some other Civil Affairs Battalions who weren't focused on the Middle East, mm -hmm. um, but they were, were sending teams to do some of the you know, OIR missions. That way we could keep you know, a Civil Affairs company from my battalion home kind of for one extra rotation so do, you could accrue some dwell. 96 is where you ended Middle up staying? Yeah. So I was in the 96th as a team leader and I was there for like two years, um, which is pretty normal. Once you finish team time, they kick you out of the nest and you have to go somewhere else. And I ended up going up to 1st Special Forces Command, which is still on Fort Bragg, but that's your two-star command that we've I've mentioned a couple times that oversees all SF groups, the Civil Affairs Brigade, and the two PSYOPs groups. Yeah. Yeah, so I worked in the G33 there where we were doing, kind of focused on obviously current ops, moving people in and out of country because everyone's deploying all the time uh, from all the units, but this was also during COVID when it was extremely complicated to go anywhere at any time um, outside the United States. Bragg, so, I mean, North Carolina locked down, but Bragg, I think, locked down as well, right? Uh, it was pretty tough for you guys. Mm -hmm. Yeah, so... Uh, we were going to do a podcast there, and I remember it was had to be canceled because we couldn't come in. Yeah, there was a time where there was, like, movement restrictions. Like, you weren't supposed to go farther than 50 miles. Um, then it changed to, like, you can't leave the state, or there were certain cities or states you weren't allowed to go to. This was back when we were all just starting to understand, like, the data of where spikes are and stuff. So it changed all the time. And they were really trying to be... Um, you can't be proactive. You can only be like as reactive as possible and continue to update, update your guidance, which is a big thing. We had actually set up a whole cell just in our G33, the COVID cell that just tracked like new op boards and fragos and regulations about who can go where and when. That way we could help inform uh, all the subordinate units and stuff like that. But um, yeah, there was a period where we couldn't travel and Atlanta was a hotspot, which is close to where we're sitting now. And my wife had moved down here that summer for a job after she finished her MBA and suddenly living apart sucks. We had done it a ton already. And, uh, this was right around last summer, not quite a year ago. Um, when I couldn't even visit her on the weekends. And that's when I was like, you know what? Like I'm done. Yeah. <laughs> I don't want to be in the army anymore. Um, I just want to be where she is, which is why I'm down here hanging out in Georgia today. Yeah. So you just recently got out. Yeah, technically I have 17 days to go before my leave burns out. So I'm oh, I'm getting paid right now. You're still on terminal leave then. <laughs> I'm still on terminal leave. I nice. got lucky. I had a ton of days saved up. Um, so April 30th was my last day up there at Bragg. But uh, I had been kind of sneaky and found a, depending on who's listening to it, this they may agree that it was kind of sneaky. But I found a day to spend some extra time here in Georgia in the last 180-day window because you can do the career skills program for anybody out there listening that's thinking about 
transitioning out Google skill bridge and go from there. Like S-K-I-L-L-B-R-I-D-G-E, skill bridge. Um, yeah, I was recently looking at that. You have to be within like 18 months of your ETS or within six months. What is, what is so it? It's eight- basically a choose your own adventure internship. Um, oh, and not, that's where I met you then. Exactly. So there's a lot of companies that have signed up uh, to basically be a flywheel for people getting out to Home Depot can so, say, hey, give me your folks. They signed up for that? There's, there's, yeah, I don't. Okay, I don't, we'll get to where that was, but this, this is interesting. Okay, so essentially um, the Army and other service components will allow you to do in your last 180 days up to like 12 weeks or 16 weeks of an internship somewhere else. Why did they have this around when I got out? That's um, awesome. Uh, yeah, right. My wife got out like four years before me, and she was if after the same thing. If you're within just a couple of weeks of ETSing, you can do it after the fact too. You can do it post ETS date, but you have to have it all set up. I looked into it. I'm too far out. Honestly. I I hope more Six people years. who are listening to this actually take advantage of this. this is good. Keep going. It's awesome. And when Tommy yeah. Stoner comes in here, he'll, he'll yeah. talk about it a lot too after me. Um, but I was like, okay, I get to choose my own adventure. Um, generally, I don't want to pick like a corporation or an industry to do an internship in because then that's like me basically choosing my path and there might be some kind of expectation for me to like continue and take a full-time position there if I didn't like it. So um, instead, I did a little kind of access and placement operation, as we say in civil affairs, where I realized, okay, uh, I'll just go work at a brewery, uh, which is a, a common love that we have of home brewing and, and exploring, you know, culture through beer. Yes. And so I picked a local brewery to where my wife's apartment in Atlanta was and let them know. But did they have to sign up for it? Yes. So they, did you go to them and ask them or they already knew about it? No, I went, I went to them and talked about it. Oh, look at you. I had to pitch to them. So I said, I'm free labor. You owe me nothing. I'm just here. Are you in? And they were like, yeah. So, uh, and I, I interviewed with a couple breweries in the area. Yeah. Um, but I knew that if I worked with them, there's no expectation of like employment or anything afterwards. There was with some, which I, for that reason, I chose not to go to those breweries, but this one called Firemaker, awesome dudes, uh, were like, yeah, come down, hang out with us, uh, learn, see what you think about the industry, et cetera, and no real expectations afterwards. So I was able to one, spend all day having a ton of fun with awesome people making beer, drinking beer. Um, whatever, but it, I was in the city I needed to be in to set up what I wanted to do next. not far from where next. you were living, too, or your wife Exactly, was yeah. yeah. So I was right down, working right down the street. It was an easy life. And so I spent all my free time when I wasn't, you know, doing my janitorial duties in the brewery, uh, meeting with business leaders from Atlanta and setting up informational kind of interviews and starting to build my network down here. Had I not had those 12 weeks, and this is all while I'm on active duty, right? Mm-hmm. Like I could, if I had not set myself up for this, I'd still be sitting in a cubicle in the basement of First Special Forces Command, waiting to come down to Atlanta to start this process of building my network. And after out you've I'm, gotten out. So after I got out, but instead I got to come down early and build my network ahead of time. And then uh, after the internship, I returned to Fort Bragg for just a quick three weeks to do out processing, um, which everyone who listens to this podcast will know what that means. Mm-hmm. And then popped right back down to Atlanta, and it's as if I never left. I was yeah. only gone for a couple weeks. I was going to ask you, what kind of benefits do you get with the uh, skill bridge? Do they pay like they pay for you to come down here, right? They're going to pay your travel. No, no. Uh, do they pay so, a per diem? So, or it's just your military salary? Like, what about housing? If you're going to be remote from where nope. your it's on you. Is? You're going to you're going to you're going to retain. They're you're just still giving on you active time duty. Off. Yeah, yeah. Okay. It, you're you are on permissive TDY. Uh, okay, so. Okay. 
I was still getting my, you know, my regular salary, mm-hmm. um, my BAH, et cetera. But you're not getting any additional monetary benefit. Nope, there's no additional monetary benefit. It's a benefit. great question because let's yeah. say I'm from, you know, Florida, and but I don't want to reside there when I get out. So I'm going to go to Atlanta. Well, Atlanta may be an expensive area, but the Army is just saying, listen, we're going to give you the time off. Mm-hmm. Yeah. What you do with that time off in in during this internship to be able to build your network and stuff is on your dime. The only thing we're going to do is not allow you to go to formations and do your day job. Exactly. Yeah. And the whole thing goes through a legal review. So the brewery had to sign some paperwork that saying like this is the training program that Casey will go through. Sure. These are the skills he'll have when he's done. How to push a broom and a, a squeegee. Ex- exactly. <laughs> How to handle dangerous chemicals. Yes. How to drive right. a forklift. Yeah. Okay. Um, but <laughs> you walk out of there or the, the brewery also basically has to concur that like this program will not cost Casey any money. He's not expected to like pay or contribute or buy any materials. And also um, the army guarantees this does not cost the brewery any money. Like you know, you're not required to give Casey anything. There's no, I did, you know, yeah, tap no room I wasn't taking any tip share or right, anything like right. that. There's okay. no money changing hands. I did get plenty of free beer, but I don't know. That's just perks of the job. That's liquid. That's different. Yeah. Right. Yeah. Liquid assets. <laughs> 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 and that's where we met. So it just so happened. I went up to Firemaker uh, Brewery. I, we, I think we were, we were celebrating a friend of mine's birthday and so we went up there and uh, as one of the many breweries that we hit up in Atlanta um, to celebrate his birthday. He's all about hitting breweries. I mean, that's probably 150 or so under his belt from all over the, the, the country. And so um, we happened to walk in, struck up a conversation. You take us on a tour. And at the end of that, that's when you started talking about, hey, this is what I'm doing. Blew me away. I'd never even heard about something like that. Yeah, it, it was funny. You know, we had spent like almost a half hour uh, talking about beer, touring the brewery, just hanging out. And before we even realized that either of us had anything to do with the army. <laughs> well, you didn't look it. And certainly I'm too old to look it. So anyway, we're what just are you talking about. I was perfectly clean shaven. I, I like <laughs> well within grooming standards. Yeah, well within. We didn't, we didn't take any pictures that day. Did we? No, we didn't. <laughs> and of course you kept doing PT. Yeah. But you know what? That, that working in the brewery is PT. Um, yeah. yeah, I mean, I was throwing kegs, you know, full, a full half barrel kegs, like 165 pounds. I would, okay. I would move well over a hundred of those a week. Um, okay. sometimes by hand, sometimes with a forklift or picking them up and putting it on pallets, scrubbing everything. I was on my feet. I was, I used to keep my, you know, my Garmin like step, it counts steps. I was doing like 18 miles of walking a day in wow. not that big of a place. It's just, yeah, it's not wow. that big of a place. I was, I was on my feet. I was going to work at five in the morning. And, wow. and I was doing 13 hour days. I told the brewer, I was like, I, I, this is the hardest I've worked in a long time. Like that's kind of bullshit, <laughs> man. <laughs> uh, go from the soft community to a brewery and work well, I harder. Think that's your selling point. I mean, you'd be civil affairs. It's easier than working in a brewery. Put <laughs> <laughs> that Dude, on a poster. <laughs> I'll tell you, man. Yeah. A lot of things are, it is hard work. I mean, crawling inside, there's some, yeah, crawling inside some of those tanks and scrubbing them from the inside out, which I, I guess if OSHA showed up, they would not be happy about. But cleanliness is extremely important at a brewery. So yeah, yeah. I cover everything from the inside out. Yeah, yeah. It's, a, it's kind of a thankless job. People don't realize that when they go to those things. They just hit the tap room, and they, they don't understand the hard work. And not only that, but it's an industry that doesn't pay well either. Yeah, you know? Right? Yeah, I can't believe that. There's very little money to be made unless you 
are the owner who then sells your you know company to one of the larger collectives or Anheuser-Busch or something like that. It, it also is kind of hard in a way to make money in Georgia. I don't know, maybe some of the people in the industry might not like it when I say this, but they have a three-tier system where breweries can sell their beer from the tap on location and they can sell six packs on location. But if there's a restaurant across the street, they cannot sell their beer to that restaurant. Mm-hmm. They have to, to sell it to a distributor really? um, who then marks it up. So if you ever want to go to make money um, outside of your tap room, the margins are super low. And then, so you're, you have to increase capacity substantially to fill all your accounts in the market, but the margin's super thin. So you're doing 10 times the work for one-tenth of the you know, See, profit. You're saying all of this. Now, anybody who's listening to this lingo, you just kind of laid down here in the last 60 seconds. Sorry. No, 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 it's good stuff because I think um, what it tells me is that you may have had some of this knowledge about, you know, business sense, but it exposed you, it gave you the opportunity. You may have been doing some hard work that was probably more janitorial and not really maybe even what some people expect it to be, but it taught you about running a business, being an entrepreneur, and that it causes, you have to do hard work in order to make it work. Yeah. And and so you started talking about margins. You start talking about the market space and stealing market. And you know this is business. This is this is business one hundred and one. That if, if for people who are making the transition, I highly recommend going through this program, especially if yeah. you can get involved in even something that you would not think about it, like the brewery. Getting involved in some type of organization that's going to expose you to the broader sense to see that real big picture. Yeah, I, I would tell people. Um, do skill bridge, but think unconventionally. Mm. You do not have to say, I'm going to go work for Home Depot because I want a job at Home Depot when I'm done. Think about the city you want to be in. Find something extremely fun um, or a good, basically good reason to be in that city that will give you the flexibility to build your network while you're there. So you got your, your gig that you're doing as part of the internship, but um, you don't need to call your shot that soon. Uh, you find a company with no expectations. When the internship's done, it was like, hey, great to have spent time with you. That way, when they, in the brewery, I brought people in to interview all the time. Like if someone at a company and I was like, hey, do you want to get a beer and talk? I'd bring them to the brewery and I'd do like job interviews at the brewery when I was done with work. It, it's a whole different way of thinking about utilizing that time. Mm, yeah, no, I like that. It, Cause it kind of sounds like transitions an interesting part of your life. One of the best pieces of advice I got was from my brother. Cause I was, still in the military and I had some things lined up and I'm like talking to him. I'm like, I'm going to get out and I'm going to immediately start doing this kind of work. And my brother told me, don't take at least six months, a year if you can and figure it out because things are going to change internally for you. And it sounds like this is a great way to allow yourself that kind of growth. So like if you have an interest and it's kind of an outlier or maybe it's a long shot professionally, perfect opportunity to take some time and go explore that option. And you may find that you may have found, okay, you know what? Beer is the way. And this is the, I'm going to make a a big shift and this is what I'm going to do. You found that wasn't the case, but maybe you do. And if not, when else are you going to get this opportunity to go and spend that much time at a brewery, learning something that you're obviously passionate about. So what a great opportunity. Yeah. Because you were a home brewer and then you decided that, Hey, this, this might be fun in the sense of, Hey, I do this, you know, at a home level, but it would be interesting to see the commercial side of this whole thing. 
But again, I, t- I, I take away that you learn much more than that. It's not just about the hops and the, the two row and the, no, you I, know, the, I, the, the grain bill and everything else. It's about the business acumen. Yeah. I, l- I learned a lot about the industry while I was there. I mean, I'm inquisitive. I mean, anyone, I, I guess from my background would probably do more than just listen to a podcast and scrub the tank, you know, wax on, wax off every day. I was, I was asking questions all the time and they, they were really nice and let me do all kinds of different things within the brewery. So I got, that's its own form of access and placement where I'm getting passed on to have conversations. And it's led to some things I won't, I don't have like a offer letter in my hand, but there's there's some momentum building behind industry related jobs that came out of this where one, I met the right people, but two, I've spent time there and they know I was like scrubbing floors. Yeah. So I've spent time like at, you know, ground level. So I have perspective on, um, I guess, the full scope of the community and the industry. For me, it was the same way, by the way, I didn't have this program, but I ETS or retired when I walked out the door, I had already built a network. And so it was somebody who knew somebody that got me a job as an independent consultant working very closely. It just so happened with the CEO of the company that was doing some really cool things that allowed me to be a part of it and help them do some things that led to my job. Mm -hmm. Had I not done that 12 months, I thought I was prepared. Listen, I, you know, I mean, I was a pretty confident guy. Just, you know, got my MBA and stuff and it took me two years to get that and, you know, paid my dues and stuff at nights and weekends, you know, with the family doing it. And I was walking at the door high thinking, bam, somebody's going to want me. Nobody was calling. Right. <laughs> yeah. And then I get this opportunity that lands in my face. And it's like what you're describing that you learned in this, this short time frame I did in 12 months. I thought I knew it until I walked into the business and started realizing I don't know a lot of what I thought I knew. I mean, I learned a lot of book smart stuff, but seeing it actually applied and learning how different departments interface or how money flows and how they measure the value of their people as well as, you know, how they value their organization and how stakeholders, if it's a uh, publicly held company, looks at them, new lingo, new Mm -hmm. terms, new way of doing things, very helpful. Yeah. And honestly, I had another kind of ace in my pocket. Is that the right expression? Sure. I don't know. Yeah. I don't know. You pay, play poker, Paul. Is that the right? Ace up your sleeve. Ace, Ace up my sleeve. There you go. See, not yeah. in your pocket. Cause then I had another it. tool in my kit bag. <laughs> um, Let's edit that That's part. the Special <laughs> Operators Transition Foundation. You know, I know Tommy, the CEO, is coming later. Um, I can't overstate how important that has been uh, to me, like getting comfortable and getting prepared to come out here and, I'll kind of explain what it is. There will be a whole podcast about it, but um, it's a transition foundation that you essentially apply for only for people from the special operations community from any branch. Um, And if you apply, you become a fellow and then you essentially receive executive coaching, um, a lot of training, like interview kind of familiarization, a ton of work goes into developing your storyline and your pitch and helping you target an industry. And then on top of that, the SOTIF organization has, there's, I think there's like 200 plus or minus fellows right now. Tommy will confirm that later. But um, there is this network of business leaders that have been kind of assembled in each city uh, that are interested in SOTIF and the folks that are the operators that are coming out of it. So I, I think the that network is kind of the strongest in Atlanta only because Tommy, the CEO, lives here and the chairman of the board, I think. 
Todd, Todd Kochi is his name. I think he's the chairman of the board. He's definitely on the board, is also a business leader in Atlanta. So they've kind of already assembled what they're calling a task force for every city. So when a fellow comes through and says, okay, I'm getting out, I want to be in Atlanta, I think I'm interested in finance. There's already like a, a matrix, you know, of, of business cards of people that actively support the SOTIF program and are interested in the fellow saying, okay, I'm going to introduce you to person A, B, and C. They do finance in Atlanta on your way. And then, and then it only goes from there because these people that have kind of signed on to supporting the program, these business leaders are really heavily invested and they want the guys coming out of the program or they want to ensure their success so they pass them along. So that's been an absolute flywheel for me to like get out there and meet new people, kind of figure out what I'm doing. And um, so the network is strong. And then the idea is people are getting placed you know, guys like Tommy who are like 29 years retired, 05, or even more than that are probably getting placed in C-suite positions, which is hard to do unless you have someone on the inside that understands, yes, this guy's never been in banking, but he can do this, like it's fine. Or guys like me that are more journeyman, you know, mid-career uh, that are probably just underneath that or adjacent or a chief of staff type role. And then this is very like uh, unconventional approach, like guerrilla warfare. We're going to get into these companies and then we're just going to hire each other from there on out. Yeah. You know, and it creates a flywheel and, and we're creating opportunities for the folks that are coming behind us to continue to them pull, continue to pull them in uh, to wherever we end up. So that is one half is the network, but the other half is the, the training and focus and development that goes into getting you ready for that. Um, we have like an executive coach and I, I describe myself as like me before her and me after her and my ability to kind of communicate um, things that activate me, things that I've done in my career well that translate and how to translate them um, and how to pursue them. And then there's even like a corporate engagement director who, as I'm starting to talk to a lot of these companies in Atlanta, and we're starting to narrow in on an offer. He's like, he's my coach to like, be like, okay, don't email them yet, like wait 24 hours and then we're gonna talk to him this way. And he's helping me bounce people off each other to, you know, like when banks compete, you win uh, type deal. Like how do we get these companies to compete against the, each other um, to try and convince me to spend time working for them. And that's all just because I applied uh, to this program and was invited in and it's awesome. Tommy and I both appreciate the plug. One for my next podcast episode, but also for Tommy for the foundation. That's outstanding, man. I couldn't even have done that good of a, a commercial. This is an unpaid commercial event by Casey Clark. Mm -hmm. <laughs> yeah. Well, I, I, I almost, I almost should have told you, like I could just do the podcast with Tommy because you yeah. can talk about the foundation and then I can just back it up with personal anecdotes. Um, and maybe we'll do that. Yeah. I'm, I'm, I'm happy to do that. But yeah. the, the reason I bring it up is just, I mean, we're kind of getting to the conclusion of my, career story. And while, yeah, I'm, I'm proud of like what I accomplished finding a way to be in Atlanta and spend time in the brewery to, in order to be in Atlanta and meeting people and stuff like that. That's great. But I would not have been able to get in touch with a lot of these people had it not been for the special operators transition foundation network of business leaders, bringing me in and making sure I meet the right people. Well, I'm, I'm also though, just on that note, a firm believer that there are things that you do within your life and the decisions you meet, uh, make that lead you to the, down the path of where you are today. So everything that you did, good or bad, led you to this point. If you'd have changed any one of those levers, you wouldn't end up where you are. You would end up some, someplace entirely different. So, you know, all those bad days in Korea and those times mm -hmm. spent, you know, uh, 
you know, whatever it was doing, whatever you did, you know, back in the army and stuff that we didn't even cover, uh, that might've been not as pleasant and everything else led you to this point. And I think that's what's so cool about platforms like this is that you shared your story, but then there were some messages in there for somebody who's embracing the suck right now. They can see maybe a path out. They see someone like you who, you know, spent their time in and did different assignments and picked up different, um, education, knowledge, and everything else. And then you found a program within the Army that maybe not too many people uh, find, uh, learn about and everything. And then you found a foundation through your experiences that maybe no one's heard about as well. Yeah. So, you know, it's it's great. Yeah. there's. I hope everyone, you know, I started by getting four years of college paid for and ended by getting permissive TDY for, you know, multiple months to go work at a brewery the the army just like it gives as long as you know how to like ask and find oh it takes well, you have to advocate for yourself <laughs> it does but i i i feel like i have gotten more out of it than i've given to, to yeah. an extent i mean how ridiculous is it? i've worked at a brewery for 12 weeks while i was getting i was probably the highest paid person at that brewery as an o3 yeah like and and I, that's not a i don't know if that sounds weird but it's amazing like i didn't yeah. have to sacrifice anything it would have been a, a super high risk decision to basically get fully out of the army and be like okay now i'm gonna go work a minimum wage job for a period of time to figure out if i like it instead i got to do that risk well, you free. kind of humbled yourself too here by going you know and doing what you did you yeah. went from an 03 down to let me you know sweep the deck here it's true that and that was kind of a challenge at first because i was not used to i had no exposure to the decision making um, and at first I didn't really have an, a chance to ask why, um, certain things happen the way they do. Instead, I was just, but you were willing to put yourself in an uncomfortable situation again. You know, I was there grinding. Yeah. yeah. I, I was out there earning it. My wife, you know, watching me come dragging ass coming home, like on my feet for 13 hours and doing whatever, going to bed and then waking up like at 5 AM, uh, to hit it again. And I was like, I don't love every day or what I told her was it doesn't have to be fun to be fun. I don't know. You can marinate on that, but <laughs> you were going to say, I can't remember. You can have fun without always having fun or something can be fun without you always having fun. That probably says it better. Yeah. It doesn't have to be fun to be fun. Casey, appreciate you coming on, man, sharing your story and journey and such, and especially about dropping these big bombs here at the end about those excellent programs that people haven't heard about, you know? Yeah, appreciate it's, that. it's important. Everyone knows about them. Um, I got lucky that a couple people mentioned them to me offhand, and it's changed my trajectory for the better. Um, can't imagine what this process would be like without them. So I appreciate the opportunity to come here and talk about them. Because I, I, I'd rather advocate for them than just continue talking about how much I liked wearing a Stetson. <laughs>